Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. It's been said that the first casualty in war is truth. That theme guides today's Project Censored Show as we talk about the war in Ukraine. November 23rd, I had the opportunity of sitting down and speaking with activist and author Medea Benjamin. She's co-author with Nicholas Davies of a new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Later in the program, we re-air a conversation I had with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges earlier this year. We sat down and talked about his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. Today on the Project Censored Show, we spend the hour with two veteran writers who've written about propaganda, censorship, and the horrors of war. Medea Benjamin and Chris Hedges. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we welcome back activist and author Medea Benjamin. Medea Benjamin has a new book out from Orr Books called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. It's co-authored with Nicholas Davies. Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine in February of this year attracted widespread condemnation across the West, and government and media circles present the conflict as a simple dichotomy between evil empire and innocent victim. However, Medea Benjamin and Nicholas Davies argue that it is much more complicated Of course, there has also been many different scandals, false reports, fake news, and a relentless battle of propaganda. In this new book, War in Ukraine, Benjamin and Davies deconstruct this and give a clearer view as to what's happening there. Medea Benjamin is co-founder of Code Pink and the fair trade advocacy group Global Exchange. She is the author of Drone Warfare, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection, and Inside Iran. In 2012, she was awarded the U.S. Peace Memorial Foundation's Peace Prize. She's also recipient of the 2014 Gandhi Peace Award and the 2010 Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Prize from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Medea Benjamin, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Nice to be on with you, Mickey. You wrote this in pretty record time in a couple of months earlier this year, and this book is already out. So obviously the book comes out of a, of a sense of urgency of what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, and NATO. Tell us about how this book came together so quickly. Well, Mickey, as you well know, in uh, past experiences, let's just say post 9-11, the anti-war movement has had some difficulties building up and opposition, but yet a lot of clarity when it's our own government that is the aggressor, like when we invaded Afghanistan or invaded Iraq or invaded Somalia. And it's much easier to organize people around this, get them to see that the U.S. imperial design is hurting people across the globe. This is a different situation where if you look at the war inside Ukraine, the civil war that then the Russians interfered with, with their 
direct intervention on February 24th, Russia is the aggressor. If you look at it as a geopolitical war, well, then you can put a lot of the blame on the United States for its aggression. But it's a very confusing situation because of those two wars happening at the same time. And so even the people who have been with us on the anti-war issues for decades are now suddenly scratching their heads and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm with the underdog and that's Ukraine. And so I support the U.S. NATO position. And I even have friends who were sworn pacifists for their almost entire lives. And now they're suddenly saying, yes, we've got to send more and more weapons into Ukraine. I don't know, Mickey, if you're experiencing the same thing. Actually, Medea, yes. We've seen that a lot on the left. It's quite perplexing. One can hold multiple views simultaneously. It may create cognitive dissonance, but one can condemn the Russian invasion and also look at the history. And that's what you do in your book. This isn't both sidesism. This is literally looking at how this war was set. You go back, of course, further, but you do talk about the 2014 coup, the failure of the Minx II peace plan. So could you give a little bit of a backdrop as to why you're arguing that this is a complicated war, particularly in terms of those who are seeking out or were formerly anti-war? The reason we did this book and doing the speaking tour is because we have to have these discussions with people. And even those we consider among the progressive community, this choir is not singing together on this one. And so we really need some very profound conversations. And I'm enjoying traveling around the country, speaking to people. And I think it's great that people are coming out who hold different opinions. But we have to have those conversations and recognize, as you said, that we can hold two different thoughts in our brains, which is condemning the Russians for their invasion and understanding the provocations of the United States and NATO. And I find it quite remarkable when people say, well, you know, NATO really had nothing to do with this. The Russians accepted that NATO was going to continue and was going to expand and there was never any treaty. So we go into great detail in our book, quoting person after person after person who's in these high up positions like ambassadors to Russia at the time or people who were insider academics or diplomats, you know, all kinds of people saying, this is a red line. Expansion of NATO will not be a good thing. Don't do it. Don't do it. And that came up in 1991. It came up then when Bill Clinton was in. It came up when George Bush was in. So it's come through the different administrations. But there's warning after warning. There's warning coming from the Russians. There's warning coming from the Europeans. There's warnings coming from the U.S. There's the 2008 meeting, the NATO meeting, where it was George Bush who's saying, we're going to offer NATO membership to Ukraine and Georgia. And the Europeans are saying, "Mm, don't think it's a good idea. Don't think it's a good idea. And then Bush basically pushes it through. So it's important to get a copy of the book, to read that chapter about NATO expansion, to dispel the myths. And also the myth that we were taught even before this invasion, Mickey, is that NATO was some kind of defensive alliance. But, you know, you don't have to just look at this particular incident. You could look at NATO searching for a new purpose 
after the downfall of the Soviet Union saying, oh my gosh, you know, if we're going to go to the way of the Warsaw Pact and dissolve, we better find some other raison d'etre and looking around the world far away from the Atlantic to get involved in all kinds of military misadventures and pushing for other countries to spend the massive amounts on their military that we spend in the United States. And, you know, Mickey, we have a lot of friends in Europe who have an organization called Say No to NATO. And when this goal of NATO was to spend 2% of your gross domestic product on the military, they came back and say, hey, you know, we don't want to be like the United States with no healthcare system, no free college education, because you're spending so much on your military. We are trying to hold the line and not increase the military budget. But yet NATO was always there pushing and pushing. And people like Donald Trump, who at one point said NATO was obsolete, then turned around and said, no, no, no. What I mean is that you in Europe have to spend more of your money buying our weapons. So we go into great detail in the book to understand that NATO is an aggressive alliance, that having U.S. bases and NATO surrounding Russia was a bad thing, was going to cause a direct conflict. And unfortunately, Russia really fell into that trap that was set for them by the U.S. and the Western nations. Medea Benjamin, you mentioned NATO looking for more to get into. They're now getting into media literacy in the U.S. to fight propaganda. NATO is actually now sponsoring media literacy education, quote unquote, to deconstruct Russian propaganda. That's their only interest. They're not worried about their own or anything else. Back to your book. You have a, a preface written by Katrina Vandenhovel of The Nation. Her late husband, Stephen Cohen, a Russia studies expert, was one of the few voices of sanity over the last several years. And you clearly are channeling a lot of that throughout the book. And you just mentioned there seems to only be a handful of people, you included, Chris Hedges, his new book, The Greatest Evil is War, really focuses on the problems around Ukraine especially. There seems to be a, I don't want to say a dearth, I guess, but there don't seem to be enough people with the courage to speak out in the U.S. because there's been a massive propaganda campaign here, a massive campaign against anybody who wants to question the U.S.-NATO narrative. Well, you know, yes and no. Stephen Cohen, I just adored him and his analysis was so important and profound. But there are a lot of people. The problem is they don't get to have their op-eds in the Washington Post and the New York Times and they don't get on the CNN and others. There's Katrina Vandenhoeven herself. There's people like Noam Chomsky. There's John Mersheimer, who had predicted this long ago. There's Jeffrey Sachs, who's been doing some fantastic interviews. But as he said himself, I can't get an op-ed in the mainstream papers and I get shut out of corporate TV as well. There's Patrick Coburn, there's Aaron Mate, there's there's a lot of us that are putting out really good information. I write op-eds maybe every other week. I did get one in the San Jose Mercury News, by the way, that was good. But the LA Times keep rejecting them. Even the San Francisco Chronicle keeps rejecting. It is very hard for us to get our voices out there. And that's why people are so confused because the propaganda is relentless. And Mickey, one of the things that I think is the worst on the propaganda is this idea that Putin is crazy and you can't talk to him and that this is a winnable war. 
And every time the media comes out and says, oh, wow, look what Ukraine did. They managed to take this back and this back. And yes, you know, they have been fighting very hard on the front lines. But yet then Russia turns around and has countermeasures. And these countermeasures are brutal and it is causing civilians to be killed more people to flee again, a new refugee crisis when they're hitting the civilian infrastructure. But that has to be in the context of this war will not be won on the battlefield and you keep it going and you'll just get more misery, more suffering. And that's not the way that the media is portraying it. They're portraying it as keep this going and Ukraine will win back every single inch of territory that the Russians have taken. It's the underdog thesis, as you you had mentioned before. You write here, too, that there has been more Western media coverage of the Ukraine war in the U.S. There's been more coverage than the invasion of Iraq. You write that there was more coverage of what's happening in Ukraine than when we started the war in Iraq. Absolutely. I mean, we never had this coverage that went on every single day for months at a time. The media got bored with Iraq after we stopped winning. And basically, I think most people didn't know that the U.S. continued to be there year after year. This relentless coverage of the war in Ukraine is something very different. And we don't see the other wars that are happening at the same time. So let's take the issue of Yemen, where the war has been going on now for eight years and where the U.S. is supplying the Saudis with the bombs that have been killing children, destroying infrastructure, destroying clinics and hospitals. And the people of Yemen are in infinitely worse situation as refugees or as people trying to flee, displaced people, than the Ukrainians, where the world has really poured out their hearts and their wallets to help the Ukrainian refugees. So we've been saying, why don't you cover the U.S.-supported Saudi atrocities that are happening in Yemen. Why didn't you continue to cover the U.S. atrocities in Afghanistan and, of course, in Iraq and Libya? So the media has been so one-sided on showing the terrible atrocities committed by Russia, but never showing those similar kinds of things when it's the U.S. And it also leads to this idea that how are we going to hold the Russians accountable, which is an important question, but then the U.S. has never been held accountable for what it's done in the countries that we have invaded and destroyed. I work a lot on Afghanistan, and not only did we kill so many civilians and leave that country in such destruction, but then we stole their money after we left, the $7 billion that we told them, oh, you'll be very safe to put them in the U.S. reserves, and then the U.S. pulls out and takes their money. So accountability has to go around in all spheres, and if we don't hold our own government accountable, how can we expect to hold the Russians accountable? We're speaking with Medea Benjamin. We're talking about her latest book with Nicholas Davies. It's called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. We'll continue our conversation with Medea Benjamin after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we're speaking with author and activist Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, author of several books, including most recently, just out, with Nicholas Davies, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. It has a preface by Katrina Vandenhovel. Noam Chomsky calls this a careful, informed, judicious study, and it's an invaluable guide to understanding Russia's criminal invasion of Ukraine, and most crucially, how we can act to help bring this terrible tragedy to an end. Medea Benjamin, before the break, we were talking about the double standards and how the West covers worthy and unworthy victims. Palestine, chief among them, another one in the long list of atrocities. There's something you talk about in the book about how refugees are treated globally, and you've already mentioned Yemen, and I just mentioned Palestine. But you write in the book that Ukrainian refugees are being treated differently by the West. It's quite astounding, even when the U.S. said they were going to create a separate way for the Afghans who worked for 20 years with the U.S. to get them out and bring them into the United States. The U.S. has reneged on that and left Afghans hanging both inside Afghanistan and in third countries still trying to get in here. But the Ukrainians, the doors have been wide open. In fact, Mickey, they actually created a separate line on the border with Mexico that was just for Ukrainians. And they got processed immediately where people have been living on that border for over a year trying to get in, people fleeing desperate situations from around the world. And this is known to people. And you see in Latin America, for example, cartoons that have come out showing Haitians being whipped at the border while Ukrainians, white Ukrainians, are being greeted with open arms and immediately taken in and given all kinds of help. So, you know, what we say in the book, we even show how the foreigners who were living in Ukraine from other countries, African, Indian, how they were treated when they tried to escape, sometimes not even being let on the buses and the trains with the other refugees, and how the African countries had to come out and denounce Ukraine for the discrimination against their citizens. We show it as a very racist kind of look. But we also say that the way that Ukrainian refugees have been treated should be a model for how other refugees are treated. Let's open our arms. Let's open our homes. Let's open our wallets. Let's treat people with dignity like we are treating the Ukrainians. In the book, and you have a whole chapter on media and information warfare that obviously attracted my attention. Beware of fake news. You give a couple examples of pretty serious stories of, let's just call it bad reporting, if not just outright false reporting and propaganda. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? You mentioned one in particular that's actually still, in, um, actually, no, not in the news. You mentioned there's one on the tiny island in the Black Sea called Snake Island where 82 soldiers were purportedly killed, Ukrainians. Uh, can you talk any about uh, those events? Well, we give examples that are actually just false, where the media made heroes out of a group of soldiers who actually surrendered to the Russians. 
and then, you know, never wanted to correct themselves when it was pointed out to them. And then there's this horrific sensationalization of atrocities. And I uh, totally believe that the Russians have committed atrocities because that's what happens in war and why war is itself so atrocious. And I also believe that the Ukrainians have committed atrocities, probably not on the scale of the invaders, but when we see reports coming out by uh, Amnesty International that talk about the atrocities on the Ukrainian side, they are attacked. Amnesty is attacked for even mentioning that the Ukrainians have been executing prisoners of war, which is against the Geneva Conventions or other atrocities committed by the Ukrainian troops. We also look at some of these sensationalist stories, like one that the Russians have been sexually abusing a one-year-old child and a three-year-old child. And these are never with any kind of reports that can be verified. And yet they were spread around in the United States, sometimes on front pages of U.S. journals, taking this as truth, as proof. So we are trying in the book to show that the U.S. has been taking the very serious issues of this war and politicizing them, sensationalizing them, and turning them into propaganda that doesn't allow the American people to have a critical view of what's really happening which would allow them to put the kind of pressure on our politicians that we need. I feel like we have a very, very uneducated mass of people when it comes to so many issues, but we're talking about this particular issue about Ukraine. This is a life and death issue. This is an issue that could lead us into a nuclear war. This is the time when you really realize how horrible it is that we don't have a press that can educate people in an objective way and that can turn the population into one that has opinions that would really help to put this war into perspective. Medea Benjamin, so the Annie Leibovitz Vogue photo spread of the Zelenskys didn't sway you or pull on your heartstrings? No, I thought that was terrible. I mean, I don't think that we need to show photos of the Zelenskys in any way that is going to make people feel more sympathy for them. I mean, they have the best PR that I've ever seen in modern warfare history. And, you know, this is not to say that they don't deserve to have their voices heard, uh, but then we hear nothing from the other side. I sometimes turn on RT on my computer, Russia Today, just because I feel I need to hear what they're saying. I don't have to believe it. You know, the truth is somewhere in between. So if you recognize you're getting purely the Ukrainian side and that the Western media is 100% on that side, don't you want to see a little bit at least at what the other side is saying so that you can make up your own mind and find some perhaps some position that is not one based on propaganda. You talk about RT America in the book and how it was deplatformed, not censored by the U.S. government, but censored by proxy by big tech 
and corporations that took it off the air. Chris Hedges' show, Abby Martin's archives, Lee Camp's show, all disappeared. I mean, and again, those folks were all against the war. They're against the Russian war and invasion on the RT network. I mean, Hedges didn't talk about it much on, on the air. It wasn't what his show was about, and Abby was gone. But what do you make of the silencing of those voices? Yet we have in the U.S. the Associated Press publishing falsehoods about Russia allegedly firing missiles into Poland, not checking any of the sources. Turns out AP was wrong. The sources were wrong. Russia didn't attack Poland. That's a World War III kind of incident, according to NATO charter, no? Absolutely. And to have AP, which gets out all over the world, saying this immediately, that this was coming from Russia. I mean, my heart sunk when I heard that those two people had been killed in Poland and the immediate assumption that it was a Russian missile. I thought, okay, this is it. This is what we've been dreading. This is World War III coming on. And to know that the media put that out without the sources, and then it was the president of Poland himself who had to come out and say, no, this actually wasn't a Russian missile. This came from Ukraine. And then having Zelensky say, no, not true. It wasn't ours. It came from Russia. Luckily, we got the truth out and cooler has prevailed. And you can see why people inside the Pentagon and the U.S. and the head of the CIA and the National Security Council wanted to immediately put out, well, no, this wasn't coming from Russia because they don't want to see this go into World War III. They don't want to be directly involved in this war. They will prefer to keep this war going and have the Ukrainians fighting and dying than to have one U.S. soldier be killed in Ukraine. But yes, it's a horrific example of the media jumping on something, putting out a false narrative that could have been extremely dangerous and luckily was quickly walked back. Caitlin Johnson has a recent article about this. The AP editor, one of the editors said, quote, we've got a rule about needing two sources, but maybe not this time, referring to the anonymous intel source on the alleged Russian attack on Poland. The second editor says... A single source in U.S. intel can't be wrong. Let's run this in the way most likely to suggest imminent nuclear war. One week later, AP, the reporter screwed up. Why is RT fake news but not this? It's another example of that double standard in the propaganda in the information war. And let's look at the issue of the Nord Stream pipeline and the blowing up of that. I mean, you look at what is the logical thing. Who was against the building of the pipeline to begin with? Who said they could blow it up? Who would benefit from it? Well, U.S., U.K., U.S., U.K. And then who did it? Well, it was immediately put out that it's the Russians. And that continues to be put out. And that is quite incredible. And when you have people who manage to get on the media and start talking about the reality of who would most likely be the culprit, they immediately get cut off has happened to Jeffrey Sachs himself. So it's another example of how the media doesn't want to get down to the real issues and likes to perpetuate these either total lies or misconceptions that frame the issue for the American people. So, Maria, we have a few minutes left, and I want to get to really the crux of what this is about. This is an anti-war book. There have been a couple of really good anti-war books this year, but the anti-war movement in the U.S. has been pretty moribund. As you know, you've been in the thick of it for so long, and it just seems that 
that the U.S. got so whipped up in support of what was happening with Ukraine just goes to show how easily the population can be led, just like with the WMD scandal in Iraq. What do you really hope happens? What do you hope comes out of this book, and how do you see it connecting to reinvigoration of an anti-war, pro-peace movement? Not just anti-war, but pro-peace movement. I feel like the more we educate people, the more people will join in this call for a ceasefire and negotiations. And it's quite remarkable that in this moment, the call to negotiate with the Russians and to call on the Ukrainians to negotiate is seen as Putin apologist, is seen as appeasement, as seen as treacherous to the Democratic Party. It is just so insane when you have a war that could so easily become a trigger for a nuclear war or for a World War III that you're not doing everything in your power if you're Biden, if you're Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, to try to calm the situation and get to the negotiating table. But instead, they're saying, no, 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 no. So we need a groundswell from the bottom up to say, yes, to negotiations and ceasefire, to say no to pouring billions and billions of more dollars in to keep this war going while Ukrainians are dying every day. That's why we're on the speaking tour. That's why we wrote the book. That's why we feel that we need to have large demonstrations. Somebody's got to start somewhere. We don't have even anybody in the squad coming out and voting against all this money. It's got to come from us. They got to feel the heat. Let's do our part as citizens of this great empire to say that we don't want a proxy war going on. We don't want any war going on. And we're going to have to start playing our role, getting out in large numbers in the street, putting pressure on our representatives, getting the media to take the op-eds from people who have a different opinion. Let's get out there and do our job. Medea Benjamin, as Smedley Butler wrote in 1935, war is a racket, and it still is. You end your book with Nicholas Davies saying, the lesson of this war is the same one we have failed to learn from every other war, that the real monsters are war itself and the morally bankrupt leaders on all sides who keep feeding it with our resources and our bodies. Medea Benjamin, co-author of the new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Medea, thanks so much for joining us once again on the Project Censored show. Great to be with you, Mickey. That was my conversation with author and activist Medea Benjamin. Her latest book is War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Coming up next on the Project Censored show, a conversation I had with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. We discuss his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. Stay tuned. Americans no longer fight to keep their shores safe, just to keep the jobs going in the arms-making workplace. And then they pretend to be gripped by some sort of political reflex. But all they're doing is paying dues to the military-industrial complex. The military, the monetary. The military, the monetary. The military, the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet into a cemetery. 
The military and the monetary use the media as intermediaries. They are determined to keep these citizens secondary. They make so many decisions. They're arbitrary. Today on the program, we are honored to welcome Chris Hedges. Hedges, no stranger to the Project Censored audience, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent and bureau chief in the Middle East and the Balkans for 15 years for the New York Times. Hedges previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. He holds a Master of Divinity from Harvard University, is the author of numerous books, and was a National Book Critics Circle finalist for War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. He has also taught at Columbia University, New York University, Princeton University, and the University of Toronto. His new book from Seven Stories Press, titled The Greatest Evil is War. It's been some 20 years since Hedges has written a book about war, and this is a powerful anti-war book that is long overdue, unfortunately. Chris Hedges, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Thanks, Mickey. Chris, you took a long hiatus from writing a book about war. Certainly, you've commented on it. You comment on it on your programs, both at RT and now the Real News Network. You address these issues in your writing at Sheer Post. But talk to us about this book, The Greatest Evil is War. Well, when I finished War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, which, to the surprise of myself and the publisher, was a massive bestseller, big commercial publishers came at me to write another book on war which I didn't want to do. I didn't want to get trapped into this kind of process of diminishing returns. And so I turned down some very lucrative advances and wrote a book called Losing Moses on the Freeway. It was originally called The Decalogue on how one of the issues of the Ten Commandments, which precede the Old Testament, six of them are lifted directly from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, can dominate, distort, and even destroy lives. But of course, war is uh, something that I'm intimately familiar with, covering the conflict in El Salvador for five years, seven years in the Middle East, and then covering the war in the former Yugoslavia. And so I continued to write on issues of war. At one point, I collected interviews with 50 combat veterans from Iraq on atrocities that they had either witnessed or participated in with Leila Alarian and published a book called Collateral Damage, which came out of a long magazine piece, a uh, long investigative piece that we published in The Nation. But yes, you're right. I kind of skirted that issue intentionally, and City Light, Seven Story Press came, uh, especially because I had written some very sharp critiques of NATO and of the expansion of NATO in Eastern and Central Europe. I'd covered the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. I was there for the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was acutely aware that NATO had been rendered obsolete. NATO was created in 1949 to prevent Soviet expansion into Eastern and Central Europe. It had become redundant. There were promises made to Gorbachev that NATO would not be expanded beyond the borders of a unified Germany. Everyone, and I find myself in agreement, uh, surprisingly, with Henry Kissinger on this issue, uh, that this was an unnecessary provocation. I mean, uh, uh, George Kennan called it the gravest mistake of the post-Cold War era, the expansion of NATO. So they wanted to put some of these essays together with perhaps past writings, and you're right, that I, for both Truthdig and Shearpost and other places, had written on war, not in book form. And I went back, and in fact, there was quite a large body, surprisingly large body of writing on war that we then put together in this book to 
examine various facets of war. Those people like Robert Kagan and Victoria Nuland, these kind of neocons, Samantha Power, liberal interventionists who promote war, and then, of course, are lavishly funded by the war industry. Most of these think tanks, the Brookings Institute and everything else, gets a lot of money from the war industry. We had gone out and visited Thomas Young, who was wounded in Iraq and was a paraplegic and helped him. He couldn't hold a pen while he dictated, write his last letter to Bush and Cheney. There's a long piece about a woman in the Marine Corps who works in the mortuary unit and has to prepare the bodies. And I think that each is a kind of window into uh, the vast enterprise of death that war is. And I, uh, it helped, of course, that I come out of that environment and understand it. Indeed, Chris Hedges, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on in our conversation. You have some riveting, chilling accounts of soldiers' tales and existential crisis, corpses when bodies come home. You go into great detail and share these first-person accounts of the horrors of war, which make for very powerful storytelling important lessons embedded here. You begin the book by saying preemptive war, whether in Iraq or Ukraine, is a war crime. And of course, earlier this year, Russia invaded Ukraine. You, of course, very quickly in the next sentence say it does not matter if the war is launched on the basis of lies and fabrications, as was the case in Iraq, or because of the breaking of a series of agreements with Russia, including a promise by Washington not to extend NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, not to deploy thousands of NATO troops in Central and Eastern Europe, not to meddle in internal affairs of nations on Russia's border. You go on and, and on to contextualize this right out of the beginning. So I'm, of course, imagining that what was happening earlier this year, 2022, was some spark for this project. That was their spark. So that's what triggered the request to put the book together, which, by the way, I initially refused to do for the reasons that I said earlier and that I was loathe to do a kind of pale reflection of war as a force that gives us meaning, which draws on my own personal experiences in war over two decades. But this book is different because it's drawing on the experience of people I interviewed. So it, there's very little, there is some, but very little in there of my own experience in war. And I think that it's the whole sort of jingoism around the war in Ukraine and the binary view of the world and the demonization of Putin, who like Saddam Hussein suddenly becomes the new Hitler and just the complete naivete or unwillingness to examine what the enterprise of war does. It's going to destroy Ukraine. They're going to have to talk one day. Uh, and as Kissinger said, they're going to have to exchange land for peace. But of course, Washington sees this like it did when it supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets as a way to cripple and perhaps remove Putin from power. But it's a very cynical game because the people who are going to pay are the Ukrainians and, of course, the Russians and their families. Chris Edges, I think a chapter very early in the book, very important and something that you've written about at length, riffing on Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's concept on worthy and unworthy victims and media framing. Could you talk about that and how that's so greatly at play? And, and of course, how that was a theme uh, in some part on your program at RT America, which was discontinued when the, when the station came off the air. It's a very important point. That it, we have a very kind of selective morality when it comes to international affairs and war, that we very consciously divide the world into what 
they call worthy and unworthy victims. Those were allowed to pity, such as Ukrainians, and those such as Palestinians whose suffering is minimized or ignored. So you saw at the height of the Iraq war with all of the atrocities that were being carried out by Allied forces, primarily NATO and American forces against Iraqi civilians, but the Palestinians, the Syrians, the Libyans, the Somalis, the Yemenis, the Iraqis, these civilians also deserve our empathy and understanding. And unfortunately, the press amplifies this bifurcation of the world into worthy and unworthy victims. For me, one of the first experiences with this was when I was covering the war in El Salvador in 1984. You had a Catholic Polish priest who was murdered by the regime in Poland, and the Reagan administration and the press uh, uh, used that murder to excoriate the Polish communist government, and yet the Reagan administration had worked to cover up the rape and murder of four Catholic missionaries in El Salvador by the Salvadoran National Guard, even casting aspersions on the women. Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the ambassador of the United Nations, said the nuns weren't just nuns, they were political activists. Secretary of State Alexander Haig speculated that they probably ran a roadblock. Um, and that's a perfect kind of example of, of what we do to decide who is worthy of empathy, who is worthy of justice, who is worthy of support, and who isn't. And as someone who spent 20 years outside of the United States, this was quite maddening, especially spending much of my time covering the plight of the Palestinians. And the press signs on for the project. So the press is as much to blame as the political leadership. In the book, a little later on, and this is getting more to that theme that we, we, we touched on earlier, and, and one that you pointed out that makes this a very different work for you in terms of writing about war is, while it does, of course, have your experiences, your knowledge and analysis, you also have many stories of people at war, in war, themselves, including, I'm going to mention a couple folks, but I wondered if you might might share a few of the stories or examples that, that really paint a picture. As you point out in the beginning, there are no good wars, none. We mythologize around them, we build stories around them, but there are no good wars, and the stories that you have in the book really show that. You talk about Spencer Rapone and his connection with Pat Tillman or inspiration from Pat Tillman. You also talk about Robert Weilbacher. Could you talk a little bit about some of the stories of these soldiers that you put in the book? You know, one of the most poignant is Thomas Young, who I went out to visit in Kansas City. He had become a paraplegic at that point and was on a feeding tube and had decided to disconnect the feeding tube and die. And before he was going to disconnect the feeding tube, he wanted to write a last letter to George Bush and Dick Cheney and all of these people who prosecuted the war. And he couldn't hold a pen. He was 34 years old. And so I had to hold the pen for him as he dictated this very poignant letter, which is in the book and, and did at this time receive, in fact, it received so much notoriety that he decided not to disconnect uh, the feeding tube. And uh, Tom Morello and others sort of rallied to support. I think Tom Morello actually did a concert and had him come out in his wheelchair. He didn't live that much longer. Uh, but just describing what his 
life was like. He was taking 30 pills a day, suffering from blood clots, uh, caused eventually a pulmonary embolism, and he went into a coma, and his speech was slurred. He didn't have any upper body mobility, didn't have any short-term memory, had terrible pains in his abdomen. They removed his colon. He was fitted with a, a colonoscopy bag. It was, you know, just a window, and these people are just discarded. They're out of sight and out of view. And then, of course, some of the other people you mentioned are Spencer Rapone was a West Point graduate, and he had been a ranger. He'd actually been in the Rangers before he went to West Point and served in Afghanistan. Death is so centric to war, which the Greeks understood. And as a ranger, you have to pick a ranger in the sky, some ranger who has been killed in combat, and the instructor's saying you can't pick Pat Tillman, or you don't if you're very smart, which led Spencer to begin to read about Pat Tillman. This was the NFL football player who volunteered to go into the Rangers and was killed by friendly fire in Afghanistan, and they fictionalized his death, which often happens. Jessica Lynch was the same. They invent these mythical, heroic narratives for the public that bear no reality to what actually took place. And he stood up both inside the academy and then when he graduated and was eventually pushed out of the military, especially for supporting Colin Kaepernick at that time. So these are people of conscience, people who have understood the system and tried to stand up against it. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. We're discussing his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. We'll continue our conversation with Chris Hedges after this brief musical break. Stay with us. He's five foot two and he's six feet four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's only 31 and he's only 17. He's been a soldier for a thousand years. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program in this segment, we are joined by Chris Hedges. He is author of many books, including Death of the Liberal Class, Empire of Illusion, he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent and bureau chief in the Middle East and the Balkans for 15 years for the New York Times. He also was a National Book Critics Circle finalist for War as a Force That Gives Us Meaning. 20 years later, Chris Hedges has now written The Greatest Evil is War, which will be out soon from Seven Stories Press. And we're talking about the nature of this book and the evils of war today on the program. Chris Hedges, you were just talking a little bit about some of the soldiers that you had talked to or that you, you were telling those stories. You mentioned another Robert Weilbacher. Are there another couple people or another person that you'd like to bring forward? But I think that these are really important parts of your book. As you mentioned earlier, that these people are telling the stories and you're basically sort of a conduit for people to really see the horrors of war. Robert went on to apply for CO, conscientious objectors, which they'll make it easy once you're active duty. Jess Goodell is another one. She was the Marine who worked in the Mortuary Affairs Unit in Iraq, so she collected the bodies and the body parts of Marines. And, and just that those details of, of what it's like when the body comes in, 
you have to go through the pockets. You find the notes, you find the pictures of their family. And most of the people who were killed carried lists, things they wanted to do when they got home, food they wanted to eat, pictures, of course, of their wife, kids, family, mothers, fathers, and they're young, as young as 18 years old. And they also had to deal with suicide because hazing is rife within elite units. Um, that's something Spencer went through in the Rangers, but it's, it's um, very prevalent in the Marines. I spent three months with the U.S. Marine Corps. I went into Iraq with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. And hazing, which is always part of the military culture, is more pronounced in the combat zone, partly because there's no oversight. And uh, it can be very brutal. You can be, this is Marine Corps language, quote-unquote bitch for a day, where they treat you with contempt and make you uh, do all sorts of uh, ridiculous things like carry bricks from one side to the enclosure to the other uh, and tease people. These are people who just perhaps don't fit in, uh, or at least in the eyes of the dominant group doesn't. Uh, fit in, and uh, one of the things she had to do, they would often go to the porta potties and put the barrel of their automatic weapon under their chin and blow their brains out. And the mortuary unit, they'd have to go and scrape the body parts off the walls of the porta potty and and send them home. So again, that's a kind of another window into military culture and military life. Chris Hedges, you also, of course, invoke history as a great teacher, and of course, past often is prologue. You talk about the myths around war, and particularly you dissect some of the, the more poignant myths about the United States' own civil war, and you talk even about World War II. Th those are two significant uh, conflicts in U.S. history that are often lionized and draped in valor and principles and so forth. Can, can you talk about the propaganda and weaponization of history in that regard? That's always done. It's even done in Homer. So Homer will look back to the golden age of heroes. And then, of course, Homer became mythologized. Alexander the Great used to reportedly carry a copy of the Iliad. Actually, when I was captured in Iraq, I was captured by the Iraqi Republican Guard in the Basra uprising. I had a copy of the Iliad in my pocket because it is one of the truly great books on war. And we do the same with World War II, with the Civil War. And so in this particular essay, I talk about Gettysburg. I'm descended from three brothers who fought at Gettysburg, one of whom was a Union general, one of whom was a colonel in the elite Iron Brigade, and then my great-great-grandfather, David Edwards, who was a sergeant in the 5th Maine, eventually wounded at Battle of the Wilderness, and just what the reality of Gettysburg was like. And I have my great-great-grandfather's diaries and letters which explain the savagery of that war. I mean, over 50,000 soldiers were killed or wounded in Gettysburg, and they died in terrible agony. The hospitals were improvised, unsanitary. In fact, when my great-great-grandfather was wounded, he has to walk for two or three days back to the hospital. He was shot in the shoulder, and but he was mobile. But he passes all sorts of people who are just dying, like World War One, just dying where they were left. So it's a way to kind of attempt to puncture that myth. And I mention at the end of that that my uncle was in the South Pacific in World War II and came back, uh, he was wounded, came back a physical and emotional wreck, drank himself to death. 
uh, and I tie my grandmother into it. So my grandmother was eight years old when they buried her grandfather, who had fought in the Civil War, and that wound dominated the rest of his life. And then her own son was destroyed by World War II. Chris Hedges, you incorporate so many of these rich stories into the text of The Greatest Evil is War. It's not subtle in its approach. Your message is very clear that war is a horrible, horrible thing. Yet it's all around us. And you write toward the end of the book, you have a whole chapter on the permanent war. And, of course, you go back and look, whether it's through Orwell or other literary folks, uh, you write about how these themes just persist in our culture. Even though we have critics, we have people that have analyzed this and tried to call this out. You talk about Seymour Melman's Pentagon Capitalism, the Political Economy of War. You mentioned the great book, often forgotten, J. William Fulbright, the Pentagon Propaganda Machine that Shapes Public Opinion. I mean, the permanent war machine is what requires the grist of bodies to perpetuate this kind of transnational corporate capitalism and raping of the planet's resources and destruction of the global population. So this is an entire military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower warned us in his farewell address in 1961. It's become quite monstrous in the last 60-some years, Chris Hedges. Could you talk a little bit about this monstrous machine of war and perhaps talk about what can we do to change it, to stop it, to shut it down? Well, yes, it's late empire. Tonby writes about this. Are usually destroyed by unchecked militarism. It consumes half of all discretionary spending. It's the bedrock of the American economy. It dominates foreign policy in terms of our response to the rest of the world. The architects of permanent war have thrust us from one military debacle starting in Vietnam, the 20 years in the Middle East, into the next with no accountability and uh, it's distorted and destroyed the economy it's militarized the society and you can't critique it it seized control of the centers of information both in hollywood and in the news industry and uh, this kind of standardization uniformity of public discourse around war essentially creates a situation where there's no check on this, what is this disemboweling of the country? It's also militarized our society so that, quoting Thucydides, the tyranny that Athens imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself. But all of the mechanisms militarized drones, wholesale surveillance, militarized police departments, the largest prison system in the world. Remember that those people in Abu Ghraib who went there and carried out these acts of torture had been carrying out acts of torture within the U.S. prison system. So it's, it's uh, Alexander Berkman in the beginning of World War I called the German military the enemy from within. And that's precisely what it is. How do we stop it? Well, neither of the two ruling parties have any intent of standing up to the war machine, which has become a state within a state. $813 billion for fiscal year 2023. That's more than the next nine countries, including China and Russia, combined. It's devastating the economy because it monopolizes capital. U.S. debt is over $30 trillion, $6 trillion more than the U.S. GDP. Uh, and servicing the debt costs $300 billion a year. It's just completely unsustainable. So this is the cancer within the body politic, is you know what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, not only in terms of its economic impact, but 
in terms of its moral and political impact. Chris Hedges, your book, The Greatest Evil is War, is out September 13th, and you can, of course, get a copy of it online at Seven Stories site or at your favorite independent bookstore. Chris Hedges, as always, it's an honor to talk to you. Your latest book, The Greatest Evil is War, is a must-read to stop the permanent war culture in which we live. Thank you for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks, Mickey. And that was my conversation with Chris Hedges about his new book, The Greatest Evil is War. You've been listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least... Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about crimes perpetrated by criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for by taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, seal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach. All potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we the brothers and our sisters.